All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You are listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business, and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi, we have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas. And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. As we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother, Jeff, to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So, Jeff, take it away. Okay, in the week just passed, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was up about 1,612 points, or 5.4%. The S&P 500 last week was up about 237 points, or 6.4%. And the NASDAQ last week was up about 809 points, or 7.5%. Now, for the year-to-date, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 13.3%. The S&P 500 year-to-date is down 17.9%. And the NASDAQ year-to-date is down 25.8%. Well, it's the first positive week we've had in several weeks. So it was a nice reprieve from the bear market that we find ourselves in. So looking back at this week, and I know – if you paid attention to our podcast or you went online and, and listened to the radio show, last week's show was titled A Big, Hairy, Smelly Bear, Base Case Predictions, and then some other information on, on educational planning. My question is, did that bear get a shower or a bath, or did they just put some cologne on it temporarily? Well, I think it was just hit with a with a tranquilizer dart for a short period of time. It, it's It's important. You know, there were some technical things that happened this past week, particularly on Friday. We had a nice, huge, you know, nice, big kind of rip-your-face-off rally, as we as we call it here on the Money Wise program, where the Russell indexes were rebalanced. And so that rebalancing, I would say, is definitely a contributing factor to the rip-your-face-off rally that we saw on Friday. But we've seen this before. We've seen rallies from a base where we've seen consolidation before we take another leg down. Now, obviously, it's still too early to tell from this past week and this rally back up if we're going to be going into another period of consolidation before we take another leg down. Because as we've been saying on this program for weeks, there's no fun until the Fed is done. And this is a conversation that we've been having for the last several weeks in our portfolio strategy meetings as far as how much of the Federal Reserve's interest rate increases have been priced into the market. And 
I would say that several of the next Fed fund rate increases have been priced into the market. But as Jeff has said repeatedly on the on past shows, that we still don't know what the E is, the earnings. And that's really the, the next and I would say one of the fewer, sh- the, the last shoes to drop, so to speak, on the market. And we're not going to know that information until we get well into July because earnings are going to run throughout the month of July into August. And so my from my standpoint, if you're a CEO, the second quarter earnings is the chance to throw everything out, you know, the baby with the bathwater, and bring those forward guidance expectations down to lower that bar as much as possible because they have the excuse to. They have the excuse to lower the bar as far as possible from a forward, forward guidance standpoint because we've got factious leadership. We've got inflation at 40-plus-year highs. We've got oil, you know, gasoline prices at, at, at all-time highs. So they have every excuse in the book that they can use to lower their forward guidance. But we're not going to have any of that guidance for at least three more weeks. So in between now Correct. and then, between now and then, we've got a GD, GDP number next week, the final reading for first quarter. We've got durable goods, pending home sales. We've got the core Fed's, CPI, the Fed's, core CPI. Fed's favorite PCE inflation indicator, personal income and spending, and construction spending. All of that next week, and from an economic point of view, we have zero earnings news. We don't have really anything coming from the Fed other than just the Fed speakers uh, out there doing their thing. We had the the, the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve was speaking this week uh, in his semi-annual Humphrey Hawkins testimony, and the market seemed to like it. He didn't really say anything. Uh, different than was said in the previous week's uh, Federal Reserve announcement. Uh, it, the week just passed. In essence, we the Dow two weeks ago was down 1,500 points, and the week just passed, it was up 1,600 points, 100 points. Which For is, a net 100 points over two trading weeks. 100 points. The S&P was down two weeks ago 226 points for the week. In the week just passed, it was up 236 so it's a net gain of 10 points. The NASDAQ, you know, had about a 300-point gain. They're about some rounding it up a little bit week over week. But the NASDAQ has been the, the one index that's been beaten the most. Uh, the rallies off of you – know, rallies in a bear market tend to be uh, pretty sharp. We had one in March. That started in the middle of March and went to nearly about the last few trading days of March. It was 12% off its low to the high. This latest rally off the all-time lows for the year is about 7% so far. Now, do we get it some more rallies next week and they get it up, you know, 12% from the that the, that low that was set two weeks ago, and we break down? Maybe. You know, there was no news this week as a catalyst for the for the NASDAQ to be up 7.5%. The Fed didn't come out and say they were going to stop raising interest rates. We didn't get any inflation numbers. The two statistics that we receive, existing home sales and new home sales, I think they were mixed at best. So the only and, – and Kyle's going to tell us, you know, I know he likes to be tracking tracking volume, and we're waiting for the final – volume number to come out for for friday do you have it now Kyle? no i i do i do have it and and volume was was definitely up 
over 150% over the moving daily average, which leads me again to believe that it was the rebalance of the Russell because we saw another high-volume buy day uh, back on June the 17th on triple or quadruple witching. So the two biggest buy days that we've seen pretty much all year with the exception of March the 18th were on quadruple witching of options expiration and the rebalancing of the Russell. So I guess we're saying all of this to make sure and let all of our listeners know not to get lured into a false sense of security. But let's pause right there. Let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. You Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1 800 275 2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So if you're just tuning in to this weekend's MoneyWise program, continuing our recap of the happenings on Wall Street from last week. And before we went to commercial break, I just wanted to make the point, yes, Great kind of rip-your-face-off rally on Friday. Great week overall for the markets with the Dow being up 5.4%, S&P up 6.4%, and the NASDAQ up 7.5%. But I kind of said the warning is don't get lured, lured into a false sense of security because we are in a bear market. And during bear markets, you can, you know, have periods of rallies. And we've seen rallies before this year, but we are definitely in a technical bear market pattern. And when we have rallies in bear markets, they typically can be a lot more aggressive, as we say, kind of rip your face off. So don't get a false sense of security that it's time to start loading up the loading up your portfolio with some of these beaten down stocks because, our base case of 3,400 on the S&P still stands as we record this show after the bell on Friday, and I think we would all agree. Well, looking at some statistics, I mean, and it just flashed in front of my screen, this is the best week we've had the S&P since May of 2020. But don't get overly excited. And Kyle is extremely bullish for the most part. So take that, fact that I'm, That's right. The fact that I'm saying normally I'm the most bullish of the three of us, and for me to be saying this um, – it's it's definitely you can see it in you can see it in the technicals you can see it in the volume. Um, also, but there's just no reason. There's yeah, there's no, just there, there's there no wasn't news. there wasn't a a a catalyst. piece of news uh, a cat thank you a cat there was no catalyst or rally of this size other than the fact that the Russell rebalance on Friday we, we've had well or we can just say I, I, and I don't have the statistics in front of me. But I would I would be would not be surprised if we are at some level of oversold in, in the market, whether it be certainly in some individual stocks or some broader you know, broader indexes, a a rally such as the one we've had would be expected. But if if you're a chartist or you look at the technical indicators, uh, we're still solidly in a downturn downtrend that has 
that began at the beginning of the year. Uh, as we've said before, uh, the his- history of bear markets, it, the average going back to uh, the Great Depression, top to bottom is 40%. That's the average decline top to bottom, uh, including the Great Depression. Now, the Great Depression was a decline of over 80%. If you throw out the Great Depression and just uh, include the, all the other bear markets, excluding that one, the average top peak to trough is about 30%. The average length of a bear market is little less than a year and a half. It's about 15 months. So the, the bear market began at, at the all-time highs, which were, in, in essence, the beginning of the year. So we're six months into the bear market. So if you're taking it from a historical perspective, we're halfway, a little less than halfway through the average bear market. And as of the close of business Friday, the S&P 500 is a a little over, you know, just slightly less than two-thirds of the way to what, you know, a, a the average bear market has been over the last hundred years, excluding the Great Depression. So the average, if this is going to be like an average bear market, we're going to be down somewhere between thirty and forty percent. And thirty percent takes us, and thirty percent takes us 30, roughly to our thirty-four hundred on the S and P kind of base case, right. which erases all the gains that occurred during uh, COVID. Takes and twenty twenty-one. <laughs> yes, yeah, all during COVID. So, yeah. the, so that takes us back to February of uh, 2020. We the great still... reset. The great reset yeah. is what we was what we discussed on last right. weekend's show, and it's it's kind of the great reset. But the one thing I do want to point out, just looking again, history can be a guide, but every bear market is different. Every recession, the causes can be different. If we, it's again, it's still anyone's guess whether or not we're going to be going into a recession. I know uh, Chairman Powell, during his Humphrey Hawkins testimony this past week to Congress, said that you know going into a recession isn't 100% guaranteed, but we all know that the Federal Reserve has not had a very good batting average when it comes to bringing the economy into a soft landing, but why things are maybe a little, could possibly be a little bit different this year's things I've said on past programs with as high as employment is the fact that we still have almost two jobs available for any one person looking for a job. We have been hearing more layoffs that are coming down the pipeline, but those folks will still have plenty of jobs to choose from might not be in the exact industry, but if they do want to work and make money, there's still plenty of jobs available. There is still plenty of cash on the sidelines. Again, looking at the M1 and M2 money supply reports, they're still extremely high, and that hasn't been worked off yet. So the Fed might be able to engineer a soft landing, but I would think only because of the fact that we have such strong employment and there's still so much cash that's flush in American households across the country. But those they are getting, them. they are, they are getting dwindled away with the higher cost of food and fuel. I will agree with you, Jeff, because that might have been your next point. Well, no, the point I was going to make was the Fed has never been able to engineer a soft landing where inflation was above 5%. So it would be I, the first time in history that they would be able to accomplish that. Yes, Joe. Well, I'm going to just throw something in here. And Kyle had a very, very good point. You know, every bull market's different. Every bear market's different. And every probably, 
and a lot of recessions are different, but if you have a situation where you had a pandemic, a tremendous amount of stimulus in the market, you combine that with supply chain issues, then you throw in a war with China Russia. Shut, Ukraine, China shut down. And, and China shutting right. down. It, it's, you know, like I said, there is no crystal ball for this. And if you're trying to figure it out, good luck. It, you just have to be disciplined in your approach, have a balanced approach, you know, and, and, uh, and make sure you're focusing on what you're doing for the long run. And don't lose sight of that. You know, don't make well, a short-term decision that's going to impact your portfolio over the long run. That's absolutely, that, that's absolutely right. And, and to, back to your point, Joe, this is why active management is so incredibly critical, why security selection is critical. It's not setting your feet in concrete, setting in and forgetting it, or just getting your monthly statement from whoever you're working with and just kind of pushing it aside like, I don't want to look at it. I mean, it, the, the most successful long-term investors are the ones that keep full control of their emotions. That is absolutely critical. The type of investor that gets overly emotional is typically the investor that does the most damage to their portfolio. In fact, more damage than any bear market uh, could ever do because their emotions are driving their decision-making. And like you said, Joe, making a short-term decision with long-term assets is always a really bad combination. But also the all-in, all-out strategy, why it's a failing strategy. Because if you just miss a handful of the best up days in any given market year, it can have significant impacts on your total annualized performance over the life of the account. Now, that doesn't mean all-in, all-out doesn't mean that you whittle back your allocations. I mean, right now we're what, at our third lightest allocation to stocks in the history of our firm that goes back 33 years? That's our third in, in a modern allocation? We actually have a lower allocation of stocks today than we did uh, at the heights of COVID, which was in the latter part of March of, of 2020. 2020. Mm-hmm. Our all-time historic low asset allocation of stocks occurred in October of 2008. Uh, when we were at approximately on uh, for one day, we're at twenty six percent allocation of stocks, and that was let's see, that was about six months before the markets actually bottomed because the markets didn't bottom until March of '09, the following year. Yes, Joe. Well, and when you're talking about two thousand and eight, and and both of y'all when I came on board here, there's a huge absence of liquidity in the credit markets as well, which. It, back then, that was a big caveat for getting as skinny, if you will, on stocks because there's a run in the fixed in, uh, on good quality fixed income uh, on bonds. So there was there was real no price discovery. I mean, the freezing of the fixed income market in 2008 and the financial crisis is one of the big contributing factors on top of the systemic failure of the banking system that really threw fuel on the fire for the the financial crisis now obviously that is not the situation that we're in currently and that is not what we're saying what is unusual about this year though i will say and i just read this this past week that the 10-year treasury market this is one of the worst starts to the 10-year treasury market since 1788 1788 now that is a statistic when it comes to the treasury market because it's very unusual in a bear market or in years like we're having to have both fixed income be negative and the stock market be negative. In all bear markets past, typically the fixed income is kind of the, the safe harbor where you have a little bit more protection of your assets. And this is a year where you can lose money in fixed income. And we're the first to say on this program from day one since we've been doing the show, you can lose money in bonds. 
And this year is a perfect example of that. So let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise guys will be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So I just, you know, this past week we had the the Samuel Humphrey Hawkins testimony that Chairman Powell gives to members of Congress. We get to hear all these Congress people on both the left and right pontificate and ask all these questions. And they're trying to get Jay Powell to do an I got you because all the Republicans ask him, was it all this extra stimulus from the Biden administration that was a real huge contributing factor, more fuel for the fire for inflation? And then the Democrats were were asking questions and making points of, well, look at all these other countries. I, this one Democratic congressman read off all these countries and how their inflation levels are higher than ours. But I will say, Jay Powell said, well, let's remember that a lot of that was from food and fuel tied to what's going on in Ukraine. But it was interesting how the Republicans kept trying to pull out of Jay Powell to say, yes, it was all this extra stimulus that was given from the Biden administration on the tail ends of the COVID pandemic that was a bigger contributing factor to the inflationary situation that we find ourselves in today. But j Powell, he stuck to his guns. He stayed in his lane. He said, we do not make comments on fiscal policy. That's y'all's job. We're going to focus on monetary policy. And what he said was what they've already been saying. It was not dovish in any Uh, stretch of the imagination, saying that fighting inflation is our primary goal. We're going to use every tool at our disposal to do it. And for some reason, after his testimony concluded on Wednesday, I start reading analyst reports saying, well, we kind of interpreted it a little bit more dovish. And, And I'm like, what? I'm kind of scratching my head. Like, how did you extrapolate a more dovish tone when the chairman of the Federal Reserve says we're going to use every tool we have available to fight inflation and bring it down as soon as possible? So the only possible explanation is he, was, he, he wasn't as hawkish as some p- people expected, and so less, less hawkish means more dovish. But, yeah. I, I'm the, guessing it's people looking for, for any sliver of hope gl- glimmer, yeah, any sliver you know, of light, any glimmer of hope that that the that the federal reserve is very close to st- stopping raising interest rates but the one thing that the chairman powell reiterated over and over and over during his testimony is this two percent target on inflation and if that truly is what their goal is and they're very inflexible in meeting that uh, goal then there's going to be have to be a lot of interest rate increases to get to two, in my opinion, to get to a two percent rate of inflation, and it's going to take a lot of time to do that. And, well, and yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't want. Well, I know that this is a conversation that you and I were having this past week during our strategy sessions because I went back and was looking at some historical data on Paul Volcker. The last time we had inflation at this level back in the eighties, 
And Paul Volcker, as the chairman of the Federal Reserve and the Fed governors, realized that a 4% inflationary rate was good enough with as aggressive as they were with interest rate increases. And I know, Jeff, you and I were talking, saying if the Fed is sticking to 2%, I think they need to make adjustments to that because I don't think it's really realistic when we're at 8.6% CPI, consumer price index inflationary numbers, and they're still trying to get us down to 2%. I believe that the Fed needs to increase it to maybe 3 maybe 3% as their mandate, and especially since the Fed back January of 2021 came out and said, we're going to start calculating uh, inflation differently. We're going to be using an average of inflation over a certain number of months. Now, they didn't tell us how many months they were going to be using to do that calculation, but that they would also, with this new calculation, allow inflation to run above their 2% mandate. So my question is this. If the Fed comes out in the next handful of months and says we're adjusting our mandate on the price side from 2% to 3%, I'm curious how the markets would respond to that. Well, I don't think they're going to make a change to their target mandate anytime soon. There's no reason for them to do it after they've only had three interest rate increases. I mean, they're not going to do that. I think there's also, to me, here's another, I'll throw another opinion out there. I think there's also a goal in the Federal Reserve that they need to get interest rates up to a level where there's actual real returns being earned by holders of bonds. Now, think about that for a moment, how long it has been since there have been Real returns, this is the coupon rate minus the rate of inflation. The difference is the quote-unquote real return. How long has it been since we've had real return for investors in fixed income instruments? It's been a very, very long time. You probably have to, you have to go back. Well over 12 you go, years. Sure. You probably have you <laughs> got to go back to, to, the, to the last housing bubble, if you will, 2006, 2007. Oh, five, right, oh, six. Because we've, in essence, had near zero interest rate policy uh, since 08, 09. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, so. but they're not talking about this. They're, they're not saying this. But I don't think they're going to abandon their 2% mandate right now. I, I think they might, they might lose a little credibility doing that because they've had this 2% number. They've been talking about 2% for a long time. For a I can't tell you. Full employment, 2% inflation. Yeah. Well, so I, I, so I don't think they're going to exit from that goal anytime soon, which tells me if, if, if my, if, if I, if my prediction plans out and they got, they're determined to get to this 2% number, how many interest rate increases does that take and how much damage does that do to the equity side of the market? I think I'd also told you, Kyle, when we were having this discussion about whether they need to change it to inflation to this 4% mandate from 2 is that maybe they maybe so much damage potentially gets caused in the securities market that they have to stop raising interest rates. And in order to justify stopping raising interest rates, that they will say, well, we're now targeting a higher rate of inflation for all these various reasons or something else that they could do jeff is they could come out and say okay here is the time frame that we're now going to utilize to calculate our average inflation rate to our mandate because if you go back to just the april cpi number and go back 10 years you know what the average 
CPI was or what, what the Fed mandate was? 2.1. In the last 10 years? Yeah, going back from, from April of this year, going back a decade, the inflation rate was 2.1%. Because remember, they changed the calculation in January of 2021. And that was big news when they were changing the calculation of how they calculate to the Fed's mandate of 2%. But they never told us the time frame that they were going to use. So it could be a combination of we're going from 2 to 3%. And now we're going to go back and look at inflation over a five-year time period looking backwards to calculate our average. So yeah. that could then lead, so that could then be absorbed by the market as a dovish sign. The Fed is going to stop raising interest rates. They're going to accept a higher inflationary rate. But I think it also has to go in conjunction of what does the employment picture look like? Because this past week, Larry Summers comes out and says, well, we need to see, in, we need to see the unemployment rate above 5% for at least five years to bring consumer price index down. Now, I thought that was a little bit, um, Coming out of right field, yeah, of over 5% unemployment. So he's talking about that we need to see the destruction of the job market in conjunction with the raising of interest rates and all the Fed policy adjustments from the monetary side to really accelerate the falling of the consumer price index. But, again, this is all the handicapping that we're trying to do, that other money managers are trying to do across the country. And if you're looking at your portfolio and there's not been a single change made all year and the only guidance you've been getting is stay the course and keep your emotions in check and play the long-term game, remember, in market conditions like this, it's who keeps their hole shallower. The shallower you keep your hole, the faster you recover on the other side of this when it makes the turn. And what we can't tell you is when that turn is going to be. Is it going to be three months from now, six, nine, 12 months from now? Nobody knows. But in that meantime, there can be a lot of destruction in the value of your portfolio. And so if you're working with someone that is just telling you to stay the course and you haven't seen a single change in your portfolio and you're still sitting in bond mutual funds with, you know, with any kind of duration, you know, north of three or four years and you're seeing almost double digit negative returns in fixed income, you need to ask your advisor, why? Why do we own these? Because the Fed has already said we're raising interest rates, and when interest rates go up, the value bonds go down, period. And be very careful if you're investing on your own and you're in a 401K, because I was doing a a 401K review earlier this week, and we're looking at an inflation-protected bond fund. Well, you would think if it's inflation-protected, it might be up or at least flat for the year, and it's actually down about 8.5%. So Mm -hmm. do do a thorough job and and call somebody and call us – you know, obviously taking advantage of a, of a portfolio review, but you need to know what you own. You need to know why you own it. The same thing could be said. I don't know what the high yield index is for the year. I haven't looked at it in a while. But it's not pretty. It's not pretty, but it, go, to your point on the 401k side. Where do you go? Stable well, well, that's right. Exactly, Joe. If you have a stable value fund in your 401k and you want to have an allocation into fixed income and you have a stable value option in your 401k, that is your option all day long when you're in a 401k because – you're still got to, you still have the Fed raising interest rates, and they're going to be raising it until they get inflation under control. And none of us know when that's going to end. So it's best to have a chunk of your money, a sizable chunk of your money, in that safe harbor to weather this storm until we get over to the other side of it. Let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys. You can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Money Wise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So in our last segment of the first hour of this weekend's Money Wise program, again, last segment, just getting kind of a, a topic that we always like to hit on the Money Wise program from time to time throughout every month. Again, knowing what you own, understanding if you're not having changes made in your portfolio, understand why changes haven't been made in a bear market conditions like we are. It's always great to keep your emotions in check in market conditions like this, but that doesn't mean that you stay in the same asset allocation model that you were in in 2021 or in 2020. You know, active management, security selection, asset allocation, keeping your emotions in check, these are all the keys to build and maintain long-term wealth, but also a big key to maintaining and and, and building long-term wealth. It's keeping your whole shallower and market conditions like we're facing this year. And that is absolutely key. Because remember, if you lose 50% of the value of your portfolio, you have to make 100% just to get back to where you started. That's why keeping your hole shallow is such a key. But I also wanted to go back to a point Jeff was making as far as the Federal Reserve trying to get the bond market back into a situation where we're getting real returns, real returns in fixed income that investors have not received since the financial crisis, you know, so we're going back, what, 14 plus years where fixed income has actually had a real rate of return. And for us being a balanced manager for the last 33 years, we have seen the end effect of not being able to achieve a huge real return on the fixed income side of the portfolio, causing us as asset managers to become more and more weighted on the equity side of the market. So if the end run of all of this is bringing the bond market, resuscitating it, bringing it back to life where we can finally start getting some real returns on the fixed income side, this will be very beneficial for retirees and folks on fixed income drawing money out of their retirement assets to live off of. Yeah, Joe. So what Kyle's getting into is 60-40. Is if that happens, then 60-40 won't be dead anymore. There's been a lot of conversation Very about right. is the 60% stock, 40% bond allocation dead? Do you have to have 10% alternatives, which would be commodities or, or, REIT, or REIT funds or various types of investments? But if that does happen, we're getting a real return on fixed income. Then maybe you could dip your toe in the water and say, all right, a 60-40 allocation, stocks and bonds and cash would be appropriate. I mean, well, we've been, we've been at, for four years, we've been asked, you know, challenged with that uh, situation. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for more, yeah, we've been challenged with that for 14 plus years post the financial crisis. And, and this is also causing retirees and for older investors to have to push the envelope, especially if they have a withdrawal rate north of 5%. And, and as, as we utilize the 5% rule here at Davidson Capital Management to withdraw no more than 5% on an annual basis is kind of the maximum withdrawal rate from the portfolios, at least, that we manage here at Davidson Capital Management. And I was talking about that with a client earlier this week. You know, we've had this 5% maximum rate of withdrawal in place really 
I think we're you know pushing on twenty years now because we've had we've had lower than historic average uh, yields and bonds you know nearly this entire century, mm-hmm. and you know if if you look at count number one that's been with us the entire thirty two plus years, their con- compounded rate of return is over seven percent, and that's even that's still with with a nearly approximately four percent rate of withdrawal for every year over those. 32 plus years. And the reason they were able to achieve a 7% compounded return is because we had those first 10 years roughly with much higher uh, interest rates. Those interest rates, are we, we going to get back to 8 and 9% corporate bond rates that we had uh, 25 years ago? I'm not sure that we're, we're going to get there in the next five years. You know, in the next 10 years, it's possible. And that has implications for, as Joe was mentioning, uh, in terms of allocating assets in a bond portfolio. We may be able to get away from having to be even 60-40 in a portfolio, which means for, which would be good for investors in the sense that they wouldn't have to be taking as much risk on the stock side to achieve a given level of return. And also, they would have less volatility in their portfolio because bonds tend to be less volatile than stocks in terms of their of their returns over extended periods of time but this is going to take a long time to get back to 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 the to these numbers that I'm even speculating on at this point it's going to take years it took us 40 years to go from 14% treasury yields when i was a sophomore in high school to where we got in march of 2020 Took us forty years, top <laughs> which to was about thirty-one basis points intraday. Yeah, that's point so three one percent. Well, under our estimate yeah. for that year. Right. Yeah. So, well was it that. any? Was it any surprise? Now we had actually been a little early because we've been getting out of our bond mutual funds. I think either the either in twenty. 2018, 2019, I can't exactly remember. So well, we were we've a been early. shortening, and we've been yeah, shortening we, we our duration. Been, we had been shorting our shortening our durations in preparation for the chickens to come home to roost. It just took another couple of years for the chickens to really come home to roost, and they are definitely They're making a home. lot of noise. <laughs> definitely making a lot of noise this year, and the Federal Reserve has made it very clear that they're not done making their own noise. And so, was it nice? Yeah, was it nice to put a tranquilizer dart in the bear this week? Absolutely, it's nice. But as Kyle said, don't get drawn into this false sense of that that the bear market is over, because it's not. It is not over. Don't get lulled into a false sense of security. You know, if you if you reduce asset allocations in your stocks and you're and you're way below where you typically have been, and you're thinking, okay, the bottom's in, it's time to start getting in there. No, and this is not. The Fed is not on your side. And so, as as Joe said it, I don't know how many radio shows ago. I want to give you big big props here for this, Joe. There's no fun until the Fed is done. That's it. We ought to get T-shirts made. There's no fun until the Fed is done. But I will but say this. Where am I the Port A Beach this weekend, maybe? But I, but I will say in the interim, for all nice of our listeners that, that have their allocations where they want them and they're sitting on plenty of dry powder on the sidelines, 
this is the time to do your homework and start getting your buy list together. I mean, that is something that I've been working on the past couple of weeks, vetting all of our positions because each and every single stock in our individual stock and bond portfolio has hours and hours of research for every single stock in the portfolio. So you have to do your homework. This is the time where you have time to get that homework done to get your buy list together for when this thing makes a turn. But I'm not saying it's happening anytime soon, but use this time to start building your buy list and have it ready for when you want to start nibbling, when you want to start biting, and when you want to start gorging and taking advantage of these pullbacks. I know you like that, Joe. I see you shaking your head on that. But get your buy list together and don't be complacent. Active management is key. Well, with that, we're coming up to the top of the hour break, so we'll take the break, go into the news. When we come back, I'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned. We'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Money Wise, guys, will be back after the news. All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on Money Wise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. I've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are diving into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906 zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two and if you have an investment related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the money wise program you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com if you missed the first hour of money wise you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past money wise programs you can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at davidsoncap.com. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, it's about time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your politeness. Well, as we as we like to use and utilize uh, the second hour of every weekend's Money Wise program, really going into investor education and just, again, the continuing education that all investors need to be paying attention to because with the multitude of investment choices, the multitude of sales outlets, I should say, uh, to be buying different financial products, um, we feel it's our duty having a voice and having this radio show to, to continue to provide that, that education. And there was an article that we've had for some time. We've talked about it on past shows, but it's always good to to reiterate. And it's a conversation I know that I have with prospective clients when it comes to investing. Um, and the, the title of the article is The Best Investment Advice Ever. <laughs> now, there's so much different advice out there, different guidance, different forms and levels of education out there. Um, you know, looking at this article, there's a very old saying that I know we have used from day one, and of course, with us, uh, you know, being in this, having Davidson Capital Management for more than 25 years, and 
and again, this radio show going on now in our 10th year, um, looking at, at rule number one for the best investment advice ever, and that first rule is never lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. And I believe that uh, that was one of Warren Buffett's famous advice. And, of course, Warren Buffett being one of the richest men in the world, um, I think uh, it's good It's good words to live by. And, and when I sit down with prospective clients, the one – the one area, again, of education I like to focus on is teaching a prospective client that it's not as much how well you do on the upside when the market is going up. It's how shallow you keep your hole on the downside. It's it's whoever plays the best defense is what's really going to build long-term wealth and longevity of a portfolio. Rule This rule number one, don't you think it's kind of unrealistic to say never lose money? Well, and, and, and again, investors need to keep in mind there's a difference between realized losses and unrealized losses or paper losses. Uh, maybe rule number one should should read more like never put all your eggs in one basket. Never But, put, but define never, that. Okay. Define that a little okay. bit more, okay, eggs in one basket. Never put 100% of your money in one asset class. How's that? Okay. Never put 100% of your money in stocks. Give us an asset class. Like, are Never. you talking sector specific, like all in real estate investment trusts or all in the material sector or all in technology? I think I think really the rule number one to me, and it kind of goes along the same lines as what you're talking about with keeping the hole shallow, is there's no, no such thing as never lose money. I mean, every investment – we have never had an investment decision that we've made – in the 25 years as Davidson Capital Management, every investment decision that we've made has not always made money. Some of those investment decisions have lost money. There isn't a single person on the planet that's made an investment decision that hasn't lost money at one time or the other. The the really successful people in investing never lose a lot of money. Now, keeping a that lot whole of money, shallow. keeping the whole shallow, as you were saying, and 2008 is is a great example of keeping the hole the, the hole as shallow as possible because we were never 100 percent invested in stocks that year, and we were also reducing stocks as that year went on, and so we 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 didn't suffer the 35 our clients' portfolios didn't suffer the 35 40. 50% losses that the investors that we saw come to us in 2009 and 2010, and we asked them, you know, how did you do in 2008? And they said, well, I lost 40% or I lost more than 40%. We knew right then and there that they had way too much money in stocks, if not their entire portfolio in stocks, and it wasn't being managed properly, obviously. That's, that's a key. It wasn't actively managed. It was, and again, that set it and forget it. Mentality that set and forget it portfolio. So, the the rule number one, this never lose money, and rule number two, never forget rule number one, is all fine and good, but it's not realistic because if you're going to have a diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds, cash, and all different types of asset classes, some of those asset classes aren't going to make money in a particular year. Some will. Uh, some will be more successful than others, but I think it's unrealistic to expect to never to lose money in, in investing. Because if you 
if rule number one, never lose money, that means you're never going to take risk. Which means you're going to be you're going to own CDs. Uh, sorry to take your your thunder away there. You're going to own government bonds and hold them to maturity, or you're going to own CDs or cash, or you're going to have cash. Well, that I don't know too many investors that can reach their retirement goals uh, just by being in cash or government bonds. Well, and, and again, when you are invested and you're invested in the stock market, even the bond market. When you look at an unrealized gain and loss report, if you're showing some unrealized losses, those are paper losses. Those are losses that you have not taken. It's just on paper. It's just numbers. But that loss can be will become realized if you decide to sell out. And what happened to a lot of investors in 2008 is they watched the ride all the way down. And then they got to their maximum pain threshold, and what did they do? They sold. And for a lot of investors, after they did that sell and the selling they did, they have yet to get back in. That's why we continue to face the very thin market conditions, the whipsawing of the markets, because there's fewer and fewer participants, because they still have not gotten back in, because they're still licking and and taking care of their wounds from 2008, because they sold out and turned those unrealized losses to realized losses. But if they had a proper allocation and having their assets actively managed, they wouldn't have suffered as much pain and distress in their portfolio as we have seen doing our portfolio reviews and analysis of prospective clients. So, well, we're going to pause right there. We're going to take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education and talking about an article titled The Best Investment Advice Ever. And, you know, again, the old Warren Buffett saying, you know, rule number one, never lose money. Rule number two, never forget rule number one. And us just kind of really discussing how that's kind of unrealistic. Uh, Because like Jeff, like you said in the last segment, you're going to run into some type of losses, be it unrealized or realized losses, at some point in time in your investing career, unless you're invested in cash, which isn't an investment, CDs, or government bonds. You know, you have to take a certain level of risk. You have to assume a certain level of risk to have the potential for capital appreciation and growth of your assets to meet your retirement goals or for whatever goals that you're saving for. And, Dad, I know that you wanted to, the big dog wanted to eat a little bit and had something to add to, to what. We were just talking about. Well, I think I originally said this to you when you guys came into the business. Oh, you've been that, saying this f- that, as that, long that, as that, I can remember. These were basic rules of investing. I, I honestly think this is a little bit of a Will Rogers comment. I, I'm not so sure that Warren Buffett didn't steal this from from, from Will Rogers. We never met a man he didn't like. And and and, and what the, this means, you know, this is you know, this will be my 37th year starting my 38th year of being a portfolio manager, not counting the four years as a broker and one year in graduate school, so you can add all that up. But when I see this, what this really means to me is never lose big money. 
never take big losses because you can't come back from them, whether it's financially or even psychologically. Hold on. Let me stop you right there. You just hit an important point. Psychologically. It's the psychological part point of this. Um, a lot of people get in investing. They get in the game, as Jim Cramer calls it. It's not a game. But they get in the game, and they have some moderate success, and then they start building their bet. They start pushing pushing the chips and further and further. And as they build their bet, they will get to the point where they lose. Now, to be successful, the one thing that I have learned in my 37-plus years, to be successful in investing, you have to invest on a regular basis. You just can't do it once in a while. And if and you need to take a number of positions because as you take positions, your batting average gets better. And to be successful, it isn't participating when the markets go up, as you said. It's not losing as much going down. So I believe... My personal success as an investor has come with my ability to sell. I think I'm a lot better seller than I am a buyer. And and, and one thing that we say in this office, and this was definitely true in 2008, and, of course, you know, this was prior to me joining the family's firm back. Jeff, I know you were here back during the dot-com bubble burst, bursting of the, of the dot-coms, um, is that when cert- when the markets and times just don't make sense, when what's up is down and what's down is up, when there's times where the market doesn't make sense, it never hurts to get more liquid and lay in the weeds. I know that's an old saying, Dad, that I've heard come out of your mouth for years, way before I even joined the family business, that it's okay sometimes to raise liquidity and lay in the weeds until things get a little clearer. Now, it's important for all investors to understand you're never going to have 100% clarity. The the waters are never going to be 100% clear. There's always going to be some level of cloudiness, but in situations like the dot-coms, like 2008, uh, even like how how the markets have have started off the past couple of years, um, things get a little clouded and get a little bit more whipsawish. And sometimes it's better to just kind of raise some cash and lay back until things start to pan out and make a little bit more sense because that's what we've been dealing with is some just counterintuitiveness that we've been experiencing in the market for the past couple of years. You know, and this led me to what we were talking about earlier, rule number one, never lose money, never forget rule number one is rule number two. Well, if we were in an environment where government bonds was paying 9%, then a lot of people would be attracted to that. And and there and there's been times in my career when you could do that. And so there's a riskless return that would be that would be historically a good return. Unfortunately, that was occurring when inflation was at twelve, thirteen, fourteen. So you were losing, <laughs> losing to just inflation. like today. Mm-hmm. Just like today if you put too much in bonds versus what each individual person's inflation rate is. But What this really says is what y'all were talking about, is that if you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, if you're going to step out there and take that level of risk, then you are potentially putting yourself in a position to lose a substantial amount of your money and not have enough money to get back into the game, whatever game it is you're playing. But, so, but again, but again, we don't look at the market as no, a game. No, it's not a game. It's not a game at all. But if you are, if you're a trader, I would say a trader views the market somewhat as a game. I'd agree. If you're an investor, 
it's a serious game. And so each individual has to decide what type of, is he a trader? Am I an investor? Or is this trading money? Is this investing money? So you, there's various pools that you could be doing. But one thing that you cannot do is you cannot sustain large losses and be a successful investor or trader. So whatever method you use to reduce your losses, your risk, your risk, you're going to have to take that. And if you don't determine a system that allows you to do that, you are not going to be successful. In the long term, absolutely. And, and, and see, that's the thing, Dad, is I think for some investors, maybe the traders that view the market as more of a game, more of action, more Vegas style, they have a couple of big wins where they knock it out of the park and that boosts their confidence, that helps them boost their, their maybe their trading and investing ego psychologically. That's when they start pushing over pushing the chips further and further over the line and bigger amounts of chips, then they strike out. Then they take that loss and then their the psychological aspect of it might be a loss so bad that they say to heck with the stock market, I'm never getting involved in it again. And what we've always advocated and always tried to teach is about a proper balance, about diversification. As Jeff said, not putting all your eggs in one basket, spreading out that risk, or to use a technical term, spreading out your beta. But you can't just spread it out and forget it. You have to continue to actively manage it, actively monitor it. And if you don't, then you need to work with a firm that's going to do that. I I learned many years ago that I was not a successful trader. Trading was not something that I was good at. I was good at looking at a longer picture. It fit my personality better to be an investor, plus by taking a longer-term view, thinking in terms in the stock market of actually owning the company that I was buying I found that that was more successful, and I learned that as a broker. I, I I felt comfortable with that. What I didn't feel comfortable with was potential clients or new clients that had to have action because I don't necessarily think Wall Street is the best place to get action. I think you would be better off to go to Vegas because it doesn't require that much thinking if you need action. If you like to bet on football games. with If you need that fix. If you need that. And there are people that need that. But it, Wall Street can be a very dangerous place for people that need that type of fix. I have not run into that many successful people who have traded the market. I've run into many successful investors, very few successful traders. Well, and I think some some other points you made just a few minutes ago when we talk about risk capacity, about taking a big hit to your portfolio, and again, for continuing investor education, the older you get, the closer you get to your retirement, I guess, date and time as far as your age, your risk capacity gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, you know, and I've run into people who have have very large risk, you know, very small risk tolerance, their personal aversion to risk, but they have huge risk capacity. And when you run into that situation, it's really they have their money invested very lazily. It's, it's very lazy money. It's very 4 and 5% returns when they should be taking advantage of their age. So the younger you are, the greater risk capacity you have. And so you have to really marry risk tolerance and risk capacity into one. 
Um, and that's, again, something else that we that we try to teach. So just understand, as you get older, your risk capacity gets smaller, and you have to have your portfolio managed and allocated in a way that reflects that risk capacity. What you see on CNBC, and we don't spend that much time watching any of the other channels, but what we see on CNBC is a parade of traders, parade of people looking for action, daily action, weekly action. Fast money. Fast money. You know, everything is geared towards trading. trading. Mm -hmm. That is that segment of the market. That is not a segment that Davidson Capital Management has ever participated in or would feel comfortable being in. And so when we sit here and we talk about what we see, we don't necessarily feel that that type of program serves the public to the extent it could. That's right. Well, with that, we're coming to the bottom of the hour break. So we'll take the break and we come back. We'll be continuing our investor education, and we'll do that after this. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you have an investment-related question or topic you'd like for us to cover here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing talking about the best investment advice ever article that comes from Market Watch and the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, Dad, I, as you were talking in the last segment, you know, you mentioned Jim Cramer's name. And I know there's a segment on his show that he loves to do where people call in and say, am I diversified? And they give him five stock names. And he'll either anoint it as being you're diversified or you're not diversified. And when I watch that, I, to me, it seems like it's a disservice to the investing public because what he is basically um, validating is that it's okay to put 20% of your money in one particular stock position, to hold five individual stocks, and as long as those five individual stocks are in five different industry sectors, then you're okay, you're safe. And I think that is some of the most dangerous advice you could possibly give with with his type of background and acumen as a money manager, or as a hedge fund manager, I should say. Well, I, I, I don't agree with it. Dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous if you don't watch your eggs real close, if you only got five. Uh, <laughs> you're, making, I mean, you're making big bets in, in on the, five in the, companies. In the beginning, in the beginning when I created uh, the philosophy, uh, it became apparent to me that I didn't ever want more than 5% in anything because I learned very quickly that if I bought 5% uh, of your assets in one individual well, position. Yes. If I bought 10 positions, 3.5 of them were going to be losers, but I loved all 10. Mm -hmm. And so when I got it out to 20, then I'm going to have six losers in normal markets. Mm -hmm. And the key was having the six losers not be big enough losers to overset the profits that were in the other 14. Well, if I'm Jim Cramer and five is my diversification, I sure hope it's not my six losers because then my every five 
those whole five positions would be losers. So to me, that was not enough positions to be diversified. That was very concentrated. And to be that concentrated, I don't want you to think you're diversified. You are not diversified with five positions. I mean, you might you are, be you might be diversified in the sense that you're in five different industry sectors, but you're making a very large bet on one company in that and, industrial sector. And I'll tell sector. you something else. If you limit yourself to that few of positions, you're either going to do extremely well versus the market or you're going to do extremely badly. You're, you're not going to crash do average. average. You're either going to do real well or real bad. So it's either a home run or a strikeout. Now, you can't build a business on real bad. Mm-mm. Now, he was successful as a hedge fund manager because he was a trader. He was not an investor. Long term to him could have been one day. So when you hear him discuss that, I mean, he can't do a show and do Am I Diversified and have someone giving 20 positions. So some of his Am I Diversified is for TV. Well, it's for TV. He did it first on his radio show. Mm -hmm. That's where it started. He did that on the radio show. Now, he used to do radio and TV, and his radio show was really a whole lot better than the TV show. He didn't do all that screaming and jumping around like he does, and he would just talk, which I found better for investors to listen to. He was more investor-oriented as opposed to trading. So us saying that we believe you ought to have 20 positions gets back to this fact that we don't want more than 5% of any person's assets in one position. And we say that even in your company stock. If you're investing in your company stock, the stock where you work. Three or 401 Yeah, we don't want more than 5% of your retirement money in the company stock. And I don't care how great the stock is. Because I happen to have seen times in my life where I worked for companies where people put a lot much, lot more in that, and then the companies went out of business. They not only lost their job, but they lost their retirement. And I, I can tell you that Jeff and I see this doing portfolio, doing portfolio reviews a lot with the petroleum industry employees, putting a lot of their retirement nest egg through 401ks in their company stock. And it's great to be supportive and it's great to love where you work and love who your employer is but you also have to kind of be a little selfish and think about your own retirement needs and your own retirement nest egg and not take too big of a bet because again harkens back to Enron it harkens back to WorldCom I mean it harkens back to those employees years ago who lost their nest egg because there was a lot of cheerleading from upper level management to buy keep keep funneling as much money in it as possible not saying that any companies in existence today are you know doing some of the fraudulent things that that these companies were doing but you always have to look out for kind of number one i mean you have to look out for number one when you're saving for retirement and you know another thing that i like to teach particularly when it comes to long-term investing and when it comes to performance i always like to use the analogy is you have to look at your investment returns like a batting average like a batting average for a baseball player. You know, let's use Ted Williams or let's use Tony Gwynn. Uh, you know, rest, may he rest in peace. Let's use him as an example. You know, baseball players can get into the Hall of Fame with having a great lifetime batting average, but throughout their career, throughout the lifetime of them stepping up to the plate, they're going to have years where they underperform, where they don't have a good year at the uh, up at the plate and they don't bat very well 
and they have low numbers. And then they're going to have other years where they have some average years. And then they're going to have some great years where they're knocking the cover off the ball. But what determines whether or not a baseball player gets into the Hall of Fame is their lifetime batting average, and it's the combination of all of those years and how they've performed. It's the same thought process and the same thought pattern you need to have when it comes to investing. You're going to have some below average years. You're going to have some just average years, and you're going to have some great years. But the key is is to have more great years than bad and average years to get your portfolio to the Hall of Fame. Well, here's a little commercial coming in here. Twenty five. This is our 26th year, and I was talking about I'm starting my 38th year as a manager. There was 12 years in there before Davidson Capital Management was formed in which I developed our philosophy. And I developed it managing money under three or four different corporate situations where I learned what was working and what wasn't working. And, you know, I learned on other people's money, so to speak. But I learned through those years that 100% equity made no sense. 100% bond made no sense. But the two could work together in combination. But what I found was there wasn't, there were fixed income people and there were stock people. There wasn't both. You didn't see the hybrid. You didn't see the manager that could do both sides. And so as I, as I developed our philosophy, I learned that it made more sense to be 10 years and under. It made more sense to stick with quality because by sticking with quality, you took risk out by having stocks and bonds. You took risk out. And by doing that, you raised your batting average. You made the hole shallower when you were losing in stocks you were making in bonds. And so in the beginning, oh, yeah, everyone knows the most money you can make is to be 100% in the stock market. And it works really good until 1987 rolls around and it goes down 25% in one day. That doesn't work very well. That wipes out a number of years in about four hours. And you learn, hey, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And same thing in the late 90s. Oh, yeah, it was wonderful when the dot-coms were going crazy, but it didn't look real good late in 2000, 2001, and two. And, you know, staying the course was really great in January, February, March of 2008. It wasn't very great in November, December 2008. Or, or January, February. there might not be a course to <laughs> stay. Nine. You might not have had enough course to, to, to have a meal. Well, and, and again, that goes back to what we talked about a few segments ago about the psychological damage. And I know that we've talked on past shows here on Money Wise where we've talked about the psychological effects when you take these kind of losses and how, again, it, it creates that emotion and that fear. And when fear and emotion start combining into your portfolio, it keeps you sitting on the sidelines or it keeps you less invested in stocks to to really try to achieve and reach your goal for whatever you're saving for. And we're still seeing that today. I mean, again, we're seeing it today because we see the volatility. If there's more participants, more investors in this market, more mom and pop investors, we wouldn't see this extreme levels of volatility that we've been seeing. If we tax day trading, we wouldn't have this extreme volatility. Or if having. we tax high-frequency trading or got high-frequency well, trading under control. That's that's what I'm saying. That would take care of that problem. The problem is is that high-frequency trading is paying the note 
for the New York Stock Exchange. That's how they're making their money. They are never going to go against that. For something to change in that market, it's going to have to come from outside. It's not going to come from within Wall Street. Well, really what we have to have, Dad, is we have to have a nonprofit exchange. We have to well, have yeah. a nonprofit you exchange. You guys will see that. I'm, I'm convinced. You think Jeff and I will see a I nonprofit really think exchange you, I really think you in our career? That in your lifetime, you will see a national market. I mean, because that will take away the incentive for the high-frequency yes. trading. I, I, and I, it'll be I welcome. It'll be somewhere in the central part of the country, away from Wall Street. I, I welcome that day. I welcome the day to where we see a nonprofit exchange and maybe just a one central exchange. Let me correct you. Jeff may not see it. I think you will see it, Kyle. <laughs> well, we're not that far away in age, so it's only about less than 10 years. years in there. All right, well, let's take our last commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So going back to this article, there was a couple of other statements, and these actually come from Ben Franklin, and and one of them is, an investment in knowledge pays the most interest. And again, one of the reasons why we started this radio show back in late 2005 was because it gave us a podium, it gave us a platform to provide education because there's just uh, there's such a lack of education out there and it seems like a lot of the education that is available has a particular bent you know it's trying to push you in a certain direction as an investor to buy an investment product that's being sold by the uh financial legacy distribution system you know as we like to call it it always seems that education is kind of pushing you one direction or another and we're trying to provide unbiased education and as we always say to all investors is that, you know, there are so many tools available online for you to educate yourself. You know, when a, a pitch sounds too good to be true, it, it most likely is. And there's a lot of vehicles out there to help you to educate yourself. And so as Benjamin Franklin says, an investment in knowledge pays the most interest. You really have to you have to really let that kind of soak into you. And utilize the tools available. You know, if you want to look up the broker that you're working with, go to brokercheck.com. You know, someone's pitching you an investment product. Before you sign on the line and which is dotted, look it up. Do some research. Educate yourself. You know, as we say, if you can't explain it to a 5-year-old or a 10-year-old in two or three minutes and get them to understand it, then you're probably it's not a good idea to buy. Um Another statement is beware of expenses. A small leak will sink a great ship. And, boy, how many times have we seen that, Jeff? You know, expenses is one thing that is easiest to control if you understand that you're getting charged more more fees than than you think you are to begin with. And I see this a lot with – we see this a lot with annuities – um, 
annuities, I think, are probably one of the biggest challenges. I would say drains on on assets. The biggest challenges to a portfolio being successful is is owning an annuity inside that portfolio because you're, you're basically guaranteeing that you will never even equal a market average performance because the fees and expenses built into the 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 annuity itself even if it has the best possible investment options and trust me the average annuity does not have the best the best uh investment choices possible when you add up average investment choices with high expenses you're guaranteed to be below average consistently year after year after year after year. And they're still sold. They're they're still successfully selling them to investors every single day. And we've in the ten years that we've done this show, we've almost made this our personal uh mission. Mission. There you go. <laughs> it's a personal Cru- mission. To, Cru- to, crusade. To, yeah, I like that. To steer crusade. people away from these types of investments. Now, there's also many other violators. You know, av- uh, uh, the the average loaded mutual fund carries uh, an initial sales charge that's equal to multiple years of professional full-time investment management just to buy into the mutual fund itself. They, you know, a minimum. You know, anywhere from two to three percent to as almost as much as six percent uh, is very common in an upfront sales charge. Another thing is buying stocks. You know, just buying stocks through a full service broker. And you're you're the average ticket price that I see from an from a full service broker is about two percent of the gross purchase, and that is outrageous. So you know, for five thousand dollar purchase, you're paying. Two hundred and fifty dollars in transaction costs. I mean, that's 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 a that's it's rid- twenty it's times egregious. more. That's twenty times more you'd pay at a at a, at a discount brokerage firm. Well, well, you better well, be getting good advice if well, you're paying that kind of fee. Well, well, now, if that broker is giving you good advice and covers the two percent, that's one thing. But you and I both know, unfortunately, the vast majority of them do not. Well. The one thing, again, talking about fees and, and what I, I like to, to do for any individual investor out there is to understand the two big types of fees. You have your hard dollar fees and your soft dollar fees. Your hard dollar fees are your upfront commissions. You know, those are the commissions that you see when you buy that mutual fund or you buy that stock and you pay that commission and you see it come right off the right off the top. You see that difference in what you're investing and what you actually paid and what was actually invested. That's a hard dollar cost. But where annuities, where non-traded real estate investment trusts, uh, where even mutual funds, once you get past that initial sales fee, really get their investors or get their clients is on the soft dollar side. Those are the fees that are accrued daily and taken out daily that you never see. When you get your statement from your from your annuity, that's net of those soft dollar fees. When you get a statement about your stocks or your individual mutual funds, it's net of those soft dollar fees. Those are the fees that you don't see. Those are the fees that you also need to be asking about. 
And if you're sitting down and someone's pitching you an annuity and you ask them, well, what are the soft dollar charges, they're not going to know what to do. They're not going to know what to do, and they're going to start trying to provide you with the half-truths of what you're actually Well, they're, they're going to focus on these guaranteed returns. The G word. Yeah, the, yeah they're going to focus on the G word. Which, again, is not a guarantee. It's just a promise, and it's only as good as the company providing the promise. They're going to say, don't you want 5% a year guaranteed income for the rest of your life? Don't you want that, Mr. or Mrs. Customer? And it's not quite that simple. Nope. And what they're talking about is the published interest rate, which changes monthly. It's just that hook to get you to sign on that line, and which is dotted to get you into that long surrender charge penalty period so they can lock your assets up. So you have to understand the difference between hard dollar costs and soft dollar costs. And soft dollar costs are in the prospectus. Soft dollar costs are in the information, but you have to know what you're looking for and you have to dig deeper, as we've always said from day one on this program. And if to really summarize this hour, is you have to dig deeper well, and use the tools available to educate yourself before yeah, number, you make that investment Number one, decision. be diversified. Number two, know what you own. Do the research. Dig deeper, as you say. And number three, have a, always have a mind on what it's costing. That's right. Okay, and with that, we'd like to thank everyone for listening to this weekend's Money Wise program. Again, if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday, you could reach us at 906 0070 or toll free at 1 800 275 2162. For my father, John, and my brother, Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying have a fantastic weekend. And to your financial health, we will talk to you next week.